All right, we are continuing our study through the Gospel of Luke, and in this session, we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 12, verses 35 through 48. And it's really a a continuation of the previous section, and so we shouldn't put a hard break in our mind between those. So bear in mind the preceding context. Uh, The teaching immediately prior to this section is about seeking first God's kingdom and trusting God to provide for and secure your life. That's what preceded this. Um, It actually, that section stood in contrast to that rich landowner who wanted to tear down his barns, build bigger and bigger barns. He was going to secure his own life, and he wanted to enjoy his life. And so seeking God's kingdom and trusting him to secure your life versus building your own life and enjoying your life the way you see fit. And there really isn't a break between this current section of Luke 12, 35 and following and that preceding section. And so we need to keep in mind that this section is connected to that previous one. So let me read you just kind of the flow of how the last section ended and the present section continues, really, the teaching there. Let's pick up in Luke 12, 32. It says this, Do not be afraid, little flock, because your Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to charity, make for yourselves money belts that don't wear out, an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near to destroy nor moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then he just continues right on in the section we're going to be looking at in detail here on this recording. Verse 35, be prepared and keep your lamps lit. You are also to be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns for a wedding feast and on he goes. And so really there's no break at all. Um, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be prepared. Keep your lamps lit. You're to be people like. And so the connection between that teaching that preceded this teaching, the connection seems to be being rich towards God and seeking first his kingdom. That is, recognizing that our life isn't our own to do with whatever we see fit. We can't just build bigger and bigger barns. We can't just say, I'm going to sit back and enjoy my life because, as in the parable that Jesus told, uh, God may say, this very night, I'm calling in your life, your soul. And so the connection seems to be that being rich towards God and seeking first his kingdom, recognizing that our life isn't our own, it belongs to God, and we're to focus our lives on faithful service to him. That's the way this section seems to work. And there's two chunks here in 35 through 48. The first chunk is 35 through 40, and the second chunk is 41 through 48. 35 through 40, 41 through 48. That first bit, 35 through 40, is a powerful illustration about faithful servants at a wedding feast, ready and waiting and watching for their master when he comes back from the feast. And it actually ends with a rather shocking and surprising plot twist. So that's 35 through 40. The second part, 41 through 48, flows out of a question that Peter asks about that first part. So Jesus tells this powerful story in the first part. Peter asks a question about that, and 41 through 48 then focuses on what Jesus says in response to Peter's question. So that's the setup. That's how this fits into the context and how it's all put together. Let's jump in and walk down through the details, picking up in Luke 12, 
verse 35, and it says, Be prepared, keep your lamps lit. Uh, Literally, your loins must be girded and your lamps lit. Uh, And both lamps being lit and girded loins are images of being ready for action. To have your loins girded meant Uh, is the picture of, in their culture, you have these long robes that hang down almost to your ankles. You're not wearing a belt. And so when you needed to do strenuous work, you would put a belt on and oftentimes you would pull your robe up and you would tuck the robe into the belt so that it would get up above your knees so that you could move more and you could move more quickly. So that's what it means to be prepared, to to have your loins girded, is to put that belt on, get your robe in position where you're ready to work and to move if need be. Um, And then the lamps being lit, remember, you're picturing a small little oil lamp um, that's got a tiny little basin with some olive oil in it and a little wick in it. And so it's like you you get make sure your oil is your lamp is full of oil. Your wick is trimmed and that thing is lit so that you're ready to go. You're ready for action. So you got your robe ready. You got your lamp ready. You're ready for action. You're ready for work. That's the picture of verse 35. That's the kind of servants that God wants us to be. Verse 36 then continues on, and Jesus uses in the following uh, verses a simple illustration for being prepared like this, but the illustration has a surprising plot twist at the end. So here's the simple illustration, beginning in verse 36. You are also to be like people who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast, so that they may immediately open the door for him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. So the picture here is of servants and a wedding celebration. Bear in mind that wedding celebrations in their time and their culture were huge affairs, oftentimes lasting a whole week or longer. So we're talking about a big gathering that goes on for numerous days um, and so this particular person at this wedding feast in the story is a master. So he's a wealthy master, a wealthy estate owner who has servants to wait on him. And he has gone to a wedding feast and they are not sure exactly when he returns, but they're kind of, they're prepared, they're ready, they're on guard. So when he comes back, they're ready to do whatever he needs done and to help out. That's the picture, right? So we've got a large estate home of a wealthy man with servants waiting, watching, and expecting his arrival. Now, there is a bit of a question with exactly how this plays out. Kenneth Bailey, who I've mentioned several times on the commentary, who's very familiar with Middle Eastern culture, and he is uh, fluent in uh, Arabic, so he's read a lot of early Middle Eastern translations of the Gospels. Kenneth Bailey suggests that the wedding feast is actually at the master's estate. Um, And he slips out during the wedding feast, sometime during that week-long wedding feast, he slips out, goes back to his private chambers, and just happens to find his servants waiting and ready because they're prepared. They're good servants and they're, they're alert and they're ready for him. That's the way he understands it. He bases that on ancient Middle Eastern translations that take it that way. They translate the word returns as withdraws. So there in verse 36, it says, who are waiting for their master when he returns from the wedding feast. These Middle Eastern translations translate it as who 
They're waiting for the master when he withdraws from the wedding feast. So he leaves the wedding feast, the public area where the feast is going on, goes back to his private chambers, and these servants are ready to help him out, do whatever needs done when he comes. The Greek here can mean either return, as in this translation that I'm working out of, or depart slash withdraw, as the Middle Eastern translations take it that Kenneth Bailey is referring to. And it's just not clear which sense is intended here. So does this master leave a wedding party and return home and his servants are ready for him? Or does he slip out of a party at his own estate and withdraw to his private chambers? Bailey thinks it's the latter. In fact, Bailey says uh, that's why he knocks. Normally, when you return to your house, at an occasion like this, Bailey would say, uh, you would hail, you would call out, right? Like you would, you know, you would announce your presence. It's me, the master of the house, right? You would announce it so they would open for you. Bailey says the reason he doesn't do that here is because he doesn't want to draw attention that he, as the host of the wedding feast, has left the party. So he doesn't yell out so people won't hear it echoing through the house. He, he knocks lightly and the servants open the door. Now, it's not 100% clear which way it is. Here's the thing. Either way, this master comes from the feast to his house or out of the feast to his private chambers in his home. And the main point is this, that he finds his servants, literally actually slaves, um, probably suggesting maybe you know lower status workers in the home. So he finds his slaves ready, prepared, and alert. That's the main point. Whatever the situation exactly is, he finds his, his servants, his slaves, ready, watching, alert, prepared for action. And then this is where the story takes a shocking turn. Look what happens next. Um, the second half of verse 37, verse, the first half said, blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on alert when he comes. The second half says this. Here's the shocking turn of events. Truly I say to you, that he, that is the master, will prepare himself to serve. He will have them recline at the table and he will come up and he will serve them. So this master returns to his home or his quarters. His slaves are ready and prepared to do whatever he needs done when he shows up. And instead of them serving him, he serves them. He grabs a belt, ties up his wedding robes. He prepares a table. He invites them to recline at a table. And, and then he prepares a feast for them and serves them a meal. Good servants know their place. Good servants in this culture, in this time and place, they don't recline at the master's table. Um, in fact, Kenneth Bailey says he knows of no other story in fiction or real life like this in the entire Middle East and all of Middle Eastern literature. This is such a complete reversal of roles. There's nothing like it ever told, ever written in the Middle East. This master, this master lowers himself to serve his servants. That's the graciousness of this master. 
That's why these servants are blessed. They have a master like this, a master who will lower himself, invite them to his table, and he will feed them and bless them with a feast. They have a good, gracious, surprisingly self-giving master, and they are blessed because of it. And now in verse 38, Jesus reemphasizes the main point he's trying to make. He says in verse 38, whether he, the master, comes in the second watch or even the third watch, and he finds them so. That is, he finds them ready, prepared, watching, blessed are those slaves. The second watch was uh, around midnight until the middle, you know, like two or three in the morning. The third watch was the stretch leading up to dawn. And he says it doesn't matter whether he, we don't know when he's going to come, right? So when he, if he comes completely in the middle of the night, he comes Late in the, the night, approaching dawn, whenever he comes, if these servants are ready and watching, blessed are their, these slaves because they have a master. They have a master who will care for them and serve them and give to them like this master in the story. Jesus then continues and uses another image to make a similar point about being alert and ready and prepared. Verse 39, he says, now be sure of this that if the head of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have allowed his house to be broken into. And so this next image is a master of a house, a head of a house in the middle of the night. Um, and if he knew exactly when the thief was coming, his house wouldn't have been broken into, right? Um, now Jesus is going to use this uh, in context for you don't know exactly when the the Son of Man is coming, so you need to make sure you're ready all the time. This is what he says, verse 40. You too be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not think he will. So the point of the thief in the night imagery here is being ready and alert and prepared for the coming of the Son of Man, because it's going to happen when we don't know. Like we, We're not sure when it's going to happen, so we got to kind of be on alert and on guard and ready at all times like the servants in the previous story, and presumably like this head of the house who's watching and ready and protecting his house on a regular basis. Now, a question arises from this, and that is when, when the first audience, particularly the disciples listening to this, Jesus focusing this teaching on his disciples, when they heard this, when they heard that the idea of the Son of Man coming, what went through their minds? The reason that's an important question is because Jesus is the Son of Man, and they know that, and Jesus is with them. He's with them right there saying this to him. He's not absent. So what would have it meant for him to come, right? And that's a fair question. And, and I don't know that we know the exact answer to that. Here's what we do know. Um, that the apostles, those actually listening to this teaching and in this very moment, that the apostles later took this imagery of the thief in the night to refer to Jesus' second coming. You see that throughout their writings. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Paul wasn't there on this, but he uses that imagery. Peter uses it in 1 Peter chapter 3. And so uh, the apostles took this thief in the night imagery to refer consistently to Jesus' second coming. And so that seems to be how the early church understood it. And that's probably, therefore, the way we should understand the point. Even though when Jesus first says that, 
maybe he had something else in mind. Maybe, I mean, it's like we don't know what went through their mind because he's right there with them. And so, although N.T. Wright suggests, man, it's challenging to take issue with N.T. Wright. He's so brilliant. But N.T. Wright suggests that we should understand what Jesus is saying here in verses 39 and 40 to refer to the complex series of events of his own death, resurrection, ascension, and then the ultimate destruction of Jerusalem. And he writes, that's what Jesus is talking about by this. Um, And it's possible, right? Like, I I understand why N.T. Wright would say that, but the early church consistently took the thief in the night passages and applied it to Jesus's second coming. That's That's how they use the imagery. And so I think it's probably best for us to take it at least now, at this point in time, where we're living now, as applying to Jesus' anticipated return. We're looking forward to that, and we're going to be ready for that. Now, at this point in the teaching, Peter interjects. Peter jumps in, and he's curious about who Jesus is directing this teaching to. So Peter asks in verse 41, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone else as well? Remember, Jesus is addressing his disciples and a very large crowd that's gathered around him. And so Peter is wondering, are you really focusing this on us, the the disciples, the 12, the apostles? Or is this really for everyone else? Jesus, in turn, answers Peter's question by extending the metaphor of servants being ready and what will happen when the master or the Lord returns. But he doesn't directly answer Peter's question. He seems to basically challenge Peter and the other apostles to think through their responsibility. Here's how he does it. Verse 42. And the Lord said in reply to Peter's question, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. So the steward is the household manager. He's the slave or the servant who has responsibility over the whole house, making sure all the tasks are getting done, all the servants know their jobs, everyone's working. So he's the manager of the house. That's who the steward is. And then he's got other servants underneath him. And so who's the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants? So Jesus says in verse 43, blessed is that slave, presumably referring to the steward, the slave who's over the whole house, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. In other words, um, that steward, that slave who's in charge of everything else, he is blessed if his master returns from wherever he's been and finds his steward has managed the household well. He is taking care of his servants. He's given them their rations. He's made sure they've gotten their tasks done. He's managed the house well while he was away. So here's a particular servant who's been given real responsibility, significant responsibility, sort of like the apostles. And remember, Peter asked this question, are you directing this teaching to us or to everyone else? And so now we have a steward, a household manager, and Jesus says, blessed is he when his master comes and finds that he's been doing a good job. Verse 44, truly I say to you, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. So if he's a steward 
over other servants, making sure they've, they're being given their rations, he's got can actually be given more responsibility, maybe over the field ser- servants, right? Maybe, right, he's going to be given over all of his possessions. That's the, the idea here. His faithfulness in managing things while his master of the estate was away leads him to being given more responsibility when his master comes. Now, what if that servant had been irresponsible? What if he had been a lazy and self-serving manager and didn't really care out, carry out his responsibilities faithfully? Well, Jesus has something to say about that, verse 45. But if that slave says in his heart, my master will take a long time to come, and he begins to beat the other slaves, both men and women, to eat and drink and get drunk, then the master of the slave will come on a day he doesn't expect, right? He, there wasn't mass communication. They didn't have itinerary. didn't text him, I'm on my way, right? So he just shows up from whatever journey he's been on. And at an hour, he doesn't know. And he will cut him in two and assign him to a place with the unbelievers. That, that imagery of cut him in two is extreme punishment. That's the fourth. That's, that's dramatic language for him. He's going to be get given the extreme penalty, the worst penalty he can he can get. He's going to be cut down, like we would say, right? Like he's going to be treated with great severity because he's still a servant in the house of the master of the estate. And so he's not free to do whatever he wants and serve himself just because the master isn't around. And so in response to Peter's question, Jesus has taken a very familiar situation in their culture, a household servant who has responsibility for the things of the master and he's painted two very different pictures. One, a responsible household servant, a household manager, and two, an irresponsible household manager, a self-serving household manager. And now what, what Jesus does in the last couple of verses is Jesus takes this and he applies it to two different kinds of slaves. One, who knows their master's will, and ones who don't know their master's will. And guess what? The punishment will be different for each. That's what Jesus says as he wraps up this section. He says in verse 47, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accordance with his will, he will receive many blows. And so if you have a slave, presumably in context, maybe even a household manager slave who has significant responsibility, he knows what his master wants done. And he didn't prepare the house. He didn't keep things being managed well, right? He knew his master's will. He didn't act according to that will. He will receive many blows. But, verse 48, the one, uh, the slave who didn't know his master's will, who wasn't invited on the inside, he wasn't told exactly what the master wanted done while he was away, um, that one who did not know it and committed acts deserving of a beating, he will receive only a few blows. And here's the point Jesus makes then. He states it right at the end. From everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And to whom they entrusted much, of him they will ask all the more. And so in response to Peter, Jesus seems to be saying, well, what kind of servant are you? Are you one who knows the master's will? Are you one who's going to be faithful and responsible in carrying it out? 
Um, that's what Jesus seems to be getting at. And Jesus, looking at his apostles, says, look, you've been brought into the inside. You know more than most of what my will is. And so the expectations are higher for you. And so you better be faithful. You better be ready. You be better be carrying out your Lord's will when he comes. That's the point that Jesus is making. And to each of us who know Jesus and hear his teachings and call ourselves his followers, well, guess what? We know too. We've been invited in. We have his teaching recorded in the Gospels. We, we have been uh, entrusted with his will. And so the call of this section for us is to be servants who are faithfully anticipating our Lord's return by being busy about his will. That's really what Jesus is saying to us out of this section. As we hear it in its original context and then begin to move it into our context, we need to step back and realize uh, with self-examination, are we faithfully anticipating Jesus' return by being busy about Jesus' will in whatever little sphere of influence we have? Uh, Our little sphere of influence is our own sacred trust. It's our... It's our place of household management. It's, it's our stewardship, right? It's the place where we have been entrusted as stewards of this little sphere of influence. And in that sphere of influence, are we ready, watching, and faithfully carrying out our Lord's will? Right? And so the implications of this teaching for us as disciples is, first off, to see ourselves as servants. Our life isn't our own. We don't get to do whatever we want with our life. We don't get to sit back and enjoy our life as the rich man in the previous teaching from our last session. We are servants, servants of a master, and we are uh, responsible to him and accountable to him. And the standard of our faithful service is his own will, what he wants done. And so as servants, we operate under his authority and uh, are accountable to his will. And that's really what this section says to us, is that in the meantime, while we're waiting, let's be like those servants who were faithfully watching, faithfully ready, prepared and carrying out the Lord's will. Blessed are those servants when Jesus returns. He will sit down and prepare a feast and dine with them because they faithfully carry out his will as his servants.